Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Carolyn Ford and joined by Eric Trexler. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great, Carolyn. I'm, I'm trying to count the days now of how many we've been in lockdown. It's over three months, though. Yeah, I recommend you stop doing that. I mean, it's yeah. not helping. Who do we but have to, today? Okay, so super excited. Let's get to work. Yeah, I agree. And and I've, I've already admitted I'm a little starstruck here. So today we have Major General Joe Brendler, retired U.S. Army, and a principal at Deepwater LLC. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, Carolyn. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. And and like I said, super excited to have you here today. And as I was reading through your bio, I see that you have 31 years as a cyber signal officer. Yeah, almost 32. Um, finished up my career at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, where I was the chief of staff of U.S. Cybercom before I retired. And you know, before I forget to do so at the appropriate point, I'd ask you to just please call me Joe. Okay, I'm going to General Brandler, Joe. I know we're here to talk about multi-domain operations and area of expertise, but you're also an expert skier, I see. And we just learned you hiked the entire Appalachian Trail after retiring? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I wasn't sure, of course, that I was going to be one of the 23% of people who start out on that endeavor that would actually end up finishing. So at my retirement ceremony, I kind of announced to the audience that part of my intent in retirement would be to hike at least a portion of the Appalachian Trail. And after about 30 days in, I decided to try to continue and see how far I could get. And uh, over the course of about five months of nearly continuous hiking, I uh, finished at uh, Springer Mountain in Georgia. So you went north to south? I went from Harpers Ferry north to Maine first. Okay. And then, and then because it was about 105 degrees in Virginia in August, uh, instead of going back to Virginia and continuing south at that point, I took a little extra time and hiked a different trail in Vermont called the Long Trail, which actually predates the existence of the Appalachian Trail. It's uh, um, the southern 105 miles of the Long Trail coincide with the Appalachian Trail. So I've already done that earlier. And I went back to um, Killington, where the two trails diverge, and I continued north on the long trail to the Canadian border. At, um, what they call Journey's End is the northern terminus of that trail. I took a little wow. time off then, uh, spent some time with my parents, um, and then got back on the trail going south after a few miscellaneous chores associated with the fact that um, our um, movement out of quarters at Fort Meade and into the house that we'd had in Northern Virginia for some time was done in stages. And um, a couple of the other um, breaks that I had taken from the hiking were associated with my daughter's graduation from a small school in Southern Vermont, which just happened to coincide with my arrival hiking north uh, at about the same place in Vermont. So I got off the trail, got a rental car in Manchester, Vermont, drove over to her school and she was proud to tell her friends, my dad walked here. So, and, okay, uh, <laughs> so I have this image of you showing up like Grizzly Adams to your daughter's graduation. That's not far <laughs> off. I, you know, I, 
I was able to get into a hostel overnight before I got the rental car, so I was cleaned up and and didn't smell like a you know a hiker who'd been going for five days with no kind of hygiene. But uh, um, you know my um, clothing had been scratched from about 700 miles of walking at that time, and you know I wasn't uh, you know I wasn't dressed in a suit and tie like some of the other attendees were. What made you do this? Um, I guess it had been a, um, an objective since some point in my childhood. I had done some extended um, multi-day hiking, but not much, and just in the Adirondack Mountains uh, near where I grew up. And I'd heard stories about the Appalachian Trail. I'd heard, uh, you know, it's walking. Um, it's long. Uh, it's almost 2,200 miles total. Yeah. Uh, and thought, you know, I don't, I don't know. Can I do that? And just the thought of uh, undertaking something um, and then completing it, uh, deriving a sense of satisfaction from that, became an objective. Um, also, it is an opportunity to um, get out and kind of connect with nature. So you could be as alone as you want, or because there are so many other people hiking the Appalachian Trail, there's no reason you can't join up with other people. And I did that several times. I had uh, periods of a couple of weeks at a time where I would hike with another group of folks that kind of become what we call a trail family. Um, and then at some point, uh, schedules and uh, hiking rates uh, diverge and you end up separating. And you go off. And you go off, yeah. Everybody um, has to do what we'd say, hike your own hike. You don't try to do it under the expectations or methods of anybody else. Uh, you got okay. to do, your, you gotta do your way to be successful. That makes sense. Okay. So, Caroline, I know we're here to talk about multi-domain operations, but I'm so fascinated. It's it's something I've I've thought about. I've never heavily considered. Same. Let's talk. Let's talk cross-domain though. Multi-domain operations. Yep. Yeah, I mean, 31 years cyber signal. What's has cross domain always been a part of that? Uh, cross domain has been a part of that in in my awareness since probably the time I was a captain, um, uh, working significant operations in support of Seventh Corps in Germany. Um, but multi domain operations is a newer term. That's something that uh, grew out of the evolution of doctrine uh, following the uh, transition from a, an extended period of operations against uh, terrorism that threatened the United States and a recognition that we needed to focus on uh, the adversaries who'd kind of executed their own modernization programs while we were focused on that terrorism. And we're now, uh, we were now at risk of them having advanced beyond where we were in some areas. So that focus um, required a change of strategy. Okay, so this is going to show my ignorance, but haven't we always had multi-domain, like secret, top secret, all those different domains? We haven't always addressed it that way? Well, no, the term multi-domain operations does not refer to the same domains in the term uh, cross-domain solutions. 
So cross domain solutions talk about security domains for information uh, and multi-domain operations talks about the integration of capabilities. Actually, they use the term convergence and the calibration of forces of different types in order to uh, combine the capabilities from multiple domains of warfare in an optimal fashion relative to the adversaries. So you accomplish the basic uh, intent of U.S. military strategy, which has always been assure our allies and deter our adversaries. So you assure and deter by optimizing the combination of capabilities you have across several domains. And the traditional domains are land, air, sea power. Um, and when I was a young officer, we learned about what was called air land battle, mm -hmm. which was the, uh, the rebirth of, of the modern U.S. military force following uh, the Vietnam era in which we invented new doctrine, we came out with new kinds of weapon systems, and we produced uh, a, a doctrine for the combination of the effects of, from those weapon systems in an optimized fashion, which um, uh, still applies the basic principles of war that you know, we're taught as young officers um, in a fashion that we refer to as massing effects. So mass refers to converge, concentrate, um, apply at one at the right place and time uh, a combination of overwhelming uh, combat power. Um, you may have remembered uh, Colin Powell referring to uh, the overwhelming combat power that we could bring to bear uh, during the um, uh, the first Gulf War, Gulf right? War. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is a natural evolution of those same thought processes. There's a couple of new vocabulary terms I mentioned: convergence instead of um, the massing of fires. It's the convergence of effects from across all of the domains, and that now includes um, the application of effects from operations in the information environment. The acronym there, of course, OIE is relatively new, not all that well-known. Information operations, I.O., is a little bit more well-known. That consists of um, cyber uh, capabilities used for information effect, uh, which could be to conduct an influence operation to get the adversary to do something. Um, deception is also part of uh, information operations, as is psychological operations. Uh, even public affairs uh, is part of uh, that set of capabilities. So we want to uh, converge effects from all domains, land, air, sea, operations in the information environment, space, etc., at the in, in a fashion that serves to assure our allies and deter our adversaries. And the calibration of forces necessary to do that is where strategy meets planning meets force structure, some of which is deployed and some of which is uh, stationed in the continental United States, but designated as available for operations in support of a you know, particular geographic combatant command. Think Europe uh, or Pacific uh, predominantly in uh, the framework we were talking about with uh, near-peer adversaries before.
So General Brendler, Joe, sorry, I'm doing it again. I, I was an infantryman. All I wanted were my radios to work. As a career signals officer, though, what you're talking about is really the, the enhanced co complexity of the battle space in 2020 and, and making all systems work, whether it's space or cyber or radio or whatever it may be, um, so that we have a combined action capability, correct? Yes, there's a, there's sort of a built-in uh, dilemma uh, in the application of technology. Fundamentally, you want the application of technology to serve as a military advantage. That's, that's why we do it, in order to gain that advantage. And we need to be able to protect our systems in order to retain that advantage. Um, when things start getting so complex that, you know, it's hard enough just keeping these things working, in order to be able to use them, then you bring into question whether you're actually gaining an advantage from them. So design principles have to include the notion that you're trying to abstract the complexity away from the soldier who has to use it. So that as far as the soldier is concerned, it's a relatively simple thing. It just works. I just want and my radio to work or my I, vision, my headset to show me where the op four is or whatever it may be these days. Exactly. Well, and really, you know, we're talking a lot about telework right now, but I mean, the military is like the ultimate teleworkers from forever, right? You guys are dispersed all over the world. Um, so what, how, how do you handle that? How do you make sure that you can communicate? Well, I am, you know, I have a story that I tell about what I call the expeditionary life cycle uh, for communications and IT support to a deployment. And it starts with what might be a forced entry operation. If you're going someplace in order to pursue the national security interests of the United States, and in order to get there, you have to fight in order to put capability on the ground, then that forced entry operation may involve the destruction of communications infrastructure that exists on the ground. And you have to bring with you everything that you're going to use in order to communicate. Um, it, it may be that you have to jump it out of an airplane with you and use it as soon as you hit the ground. It may be that you have to roll it off the back of the first plane that can land on the airfield you've been able to secure once you conducted some fighting on the ground. Uh, and then you start to mature the environment from an information perspective as more equipment arrives you set up a more uh, sophisticated network, again, applying the principle of abstract the complexity away from the soldiers so that they don't see it as something that is complicated and hard to use, but is available and functions as a technological advantage relative to the adversary that they're uh, facing. Uh, and then as, as time uh, goes by and things become more mature, you shift from using the tactical equipment that the soldiers had to bring in to uh, the employment of modern commercial off-the-shelf equipment that you can bring in and transition from employment by soldiers to employment by a contracted workforce that you bring in to augment the tactical force so that the tactical force is available to conduct tactical operations with its tactical communications gear. And that tactical communications gear isn't bogged down or tied down in providing the communications associated with the operating bases you're establishing. 
So that's, I, I imagine that's very difficult in the modern battlefield to keep those comms up and running as the enemy is trying to deny that and, and keep people and systems communicating. Yeah, it is difficult. Um, and uh, one of anything is nothing if the adversary is trying to take it away from you and succeeds at one point in time. But the adversary is not the only thing that could potentially take your communications capability away from you. Mother Nature always does a great job of that with, uh, you know, the presentation of threats like sandstorms or huge rainstorms, uh, cables lying in mud, and all of those natural outdoors uh, factors come into play. So it's a lot of work to just keep it running. But as I mentioned before, you want it simple, you want it available. And in order for it to be available, you have to also secure it against the actions of an adversary who might be trying to take it away from you. And that threat can be presented in a kinetic fashion where they might try to blow up your communications node or shoot it uh, in some fashion, or they may try to use cyber capabilities today to either deny your ability to use it or when you use it to cause it to function in a fashion other than you intended. What about communication across multiple networks? So back to my, my original confusing uh, cross domain with the different domains. In the field, I imagine you have to have communication from different networks, is that true? Oh, absolutely. And thanks for kind of focusing us on that, Carolyn. The, uh, the, the reality today is that almost every operation we do is going to be a combined operation conducted by U.S. forces and our allies. And just among the U.S. forces, we're always going to use more than just one network. Uh, we typically have an unclassified network and we have various classified networks for handling information of different levels of sensitivity. But when we're operating as a coalition, we then add complexity to that mix by having to put together a way to share sensitive information that we've agreed to share among our allies. And that first step is non-technical. That is a matter of diplomacy among nations to agree that, hey, we got, we're after this all together. We have we're gonna to work together. We're going to work together, and yeah. in order to optimize our ability to work together, we're going to agree to share some of what we would consider secret with each other. Uh, and then you have a, uh, a new security domain associated with that network, which is different from the security domains of your unclassified network or your U.S. classified networks. Uh, so to get the information that you agreed to share with allies, onto the network you're going to use for that purpose, you actually have to use cross-domain solutions. So this is where the term domain applies to the security domain, not to the domain of warfare that we were talking about with MDO. Right. But cross-domain solutions are the fundamental technology that make it possible to share information between those different security domains in a fashion that mitigates the risk of doing so. But the cross-domain, sorry, well, I was just going to say, cross-domain solutions haven't been around your whole career, right? Like, what did you do? What did it look like when Eric was in the field and he had to get comms out and there were multiple networks he was dealing with? How, what did that look like? Well, let me and tell you, it was, it was like always now? raining. It was always cold. <laughs> 
I was always hot and miserable. I remember the chiggers and the, I mean, the mosquitoes and bugs carrying me. It, it was horrible. Yeah, ticks. <laughs> so Lots I'm, not, of ticks. I'm not interested in your personal discomfort, Eric. <laughs> I'm interested in how the tech worked. Yeah, so we're bouncing SATCOM or HF radio back in the day, you know, and the teams I worked on. We're, we're bouncing that back to a tactical operations center headquarters, something. And then, you know, that's all one classification out where I was at in those days. I mean, we're talking almost 40 years ago, 30 years, 35 years ago. Let me not date myself too much. But then that's when we really had to get down to dissemination of that information. Yeah. So in my experience, it was in the, it was at some point in the nineties when I first encountered um, an operation and it was a training event. Um, in which it was necessary to transfer information from uh, networks of different levels of classification in order to have the information that you needed to operate. And that, for me, was the introduction of the requirement for you know, what we call a, a transfer guard uh, device uh, functioning as a cross-domain solution. Okay. And that would be around right around the time when we were sending information back. You know, obviously, I I know where it went, but I didn't know exactly what they did with it after that. Yep. Interesting. And then access guards came around after that. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting technology too. And uh, in my experience, had we had something like that, it would have simplified the situation that I had during my last deployment in Afghanistan where I was the uh, CJ6, uh, the um, coalition J6 for um, ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, which was a NATO-led operation. Um, and we had 50 different nations in the coalition. Um, there was an existing network that had been established in order for ISAF nations to share classified information with each other. But in order to uh, create that security domain, we applied a set of dedicated uh, encryption devices to create a cryptographically isolated network. And then we used a dedicated set of computing gear on that network. So on my desk, I had a computer for that network. I had a computer for the US classified network. I had a computer for the US unclassified network. And I had just as many phones as I had computers. So. Um, and access one for each network, essentially. Yeah. And access, yeah. um, cross-domain solution would have essentially allowed me to use one device if it is accredited to credited to, uh, simultaneously process multiple independent levels of security. Um, that, that MILS acronym is kind of the, mm -hmm. the go-to there. When I was a younger officer, we just called it MLS multi-level security, but uh, a multi-level secure access device would have reduced the cost of the uh, technology footprint uh, at each user's desk, such as mine, uh, by a significant factor. This week's conversation with Joe required more time than we have in a normal episode. So we decided to continue the conversation, but break it into two episodes. This week, part one. Tune in next week for part two to hear what Joe has to say about how the pandemic has changed communications and the internet of things has made the military think differently about cybersecurity. 
Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 